Hello, and welcome to Swampside Chats, a weekly podcast where commies sit down to shoot the shit about current events, history, political economy, and theory. Today, we have the second half of our conversation with From Alpha to Omega's Tom O'Brien. It's Sunday, July 1st, and I've always wanted to do that. The conversation we're going to have is called Modern Money Theory Part 2, but as you'll notice, there's not really much modern money theory to be had, but hopefully you'll enjoy it. This is sort of a curveball question. I don't know if it's exactly related, but it's on my mind when I was reading this. You're familiar with Michael Heinrich and the monetary uh, reading yeah. of Marxist Capital. And, um, well, first of all, I just sort of want to like, hear your take on Heinrich's mathematical critique of Marx. You know what I mean? Like in volume three, when he basically says, yeah, this equation doesn't actually lead to what Marx says it leads to. I think you could still empirically defend law of the uh, tendency for the rate of profit to fall, whatever. And honestly, I'm not like a mathematician. I don't really know what to make of that argument exactly. Like, you know, I can read it. <laughs> I feel the same way about a lot of Kleiman's work. You know what um, I mean? I can't remember. Yeah, like I can't remember the, the the actual mathematical one he did. I know that he's written a lot of stuff, but like when I read it, look, I think there is an industry amongst Marxists in trying to disprove Marx. Yes. You know, that's how they get a job as a Marxist. And Heinrich is one of the, in a long line of those, you know, even somebody like, I think David Harvey is just so fucking retarded. <laughs> this stage, he's writing a new book, I think, where he's saying that Marx didn't have a labor theory of value. Imagine that. <laughs> Oh, that's God, his, that's, that's, his that's nonsense. <laughs> well, I mean, if you look at like, people like Heinrich and Pustone and a lot of these value form theorists, they all have this straw man of traditional Marxism or what Heinrich calls worldview Marxism, where it's like, oh, you know, you have like the old classic Marxism of the labor movement of Kotsky and Lenin, etc. We're trashing all of that and throwing that all away or making a whole new theory of Marxism that's completely different and it's usually just has this bizarre like kind of ideas like oh well marx thought that it was about the liberation of labor but our new value theory shows that you know really it's all about the abolition of labor i just find it so confused i'll have a look for that mathematical stuff but i have read Kleiman's one on the transformation problem and i do have a degree in mathematics and i've worked in that kind of area for a good while and like as far as i can tell like answers for that transformation problem the temporal single system interpretation or whatever it's called. I think that is fucking correct as far as I can make out. Um, I've actually found an MMT or guy who's trying to synthesize TSSI awesome. and, and MMT. And I've tried so, to get sure, him on the I'm show. Sure I'm sure Kleiman loves that. Uh, who, is, who is it, if you don't mind saying? <laughs> this guy runs a blog called The Het Economist. H-E-T-E Economist, like the heterodox economist. He's an Australian <laughs> guy. And, and I've tried to, like, get him. I Actually, I did send him some of your man's work. I said, oh, this is interesting. And uh, he gave a very excoriating one-liner reply. I can't remember, just, like, saying that it was totally pathetic. Or something like this. But um, so the only people I would have to put some work into trying to understand it as well is, you know, the cockshot and that right. kind of econophysics uh, interpretation of the transformation problem. Yeah, exactly. Which I yeah. am, yeah, I am working on trying to understand that. Like, I do think climate is correct, though. And I do think when you read that book, the interpretations that other Marxists and Clement takes him on. I assume that he's being fair. Maybe he's not being fair. See, I don't but know. The mathematics seems to stand up. The mathematics to me seem to stand up and the logic seems to stand up. I can scrutinize the logic, you know what I mean? And the logic seems to stand up. And um, I don't have a lot of ways of verifying the rest. And I'm constantly floating in an aporia of unknowing when it comes to these like tertiary debates on Marxian value theory. Um, I looked at Fred Mosley's new book where he goes through the different, I think it's called Money in Totality, where he goes through the different attempts to solve the transformation problem. And he argues something like a, a Heinrich monetary theory of value. 
Uh, that's my really poor gist of what's yeah. going on there. Um, what's interesting about the book is that he systematically goes through a few different uh, ways of solving the transformation problem. And I know that uh, Mosley and Kleiman had an extended interchange that I actually compiled but did not understand. That's something that I really need to like probe into more because I feel like, and Kleiman might not agree with this, but I feel like Mosley is like the most good faith interpreter of a challenger to Kleiman that I've really seen step up that like tries to represent what he's doing. Is that fair? If you read that, like reclaiming Mark's capital book, I have, you know, oh yeah. So, you know, he goes through a lot of them, the different guys, is there Leibman and there's a few others. So I think that he has had reasonably good, you know, scholarly interactions with a lot of these guys. But it does seem to me when I read that and I read the logical problems that are put forward, I think that it, it it seems that the whole problem is based around the trying to apply a neoclassical m- model interpretation where the outputs and inputs are put back in at you yes, know a simultaneous valuation. Yeah. So and and that just seems to me to be inherently wrong. If we think about about what Marx's theory is discussing, it's Marx's theory is a temporal theory. You know, it's a theory of sequence. It's a theory of of movement. So it makes no sense to me to put them back in at the like that. Another thing I'd say is that, you know, if we had two theories and we're finding it difficult to to follow, what should we do? We should look at the fucking empirical data. And the empirical data backs up the labor theory of value precisely like Marx. Yeah. And I the think... falling rate of profit. So in the end of the day, if if it's so technical and confusing, look at the fucking empirical data and then you can assign a probability to which theory should be correct. And that's the what, way I look at it. One thing, one well thing the thing quick. about Kleiman is that he claims to have um data that's different. He like uh, what was the contrary about climbing the data again? Like well, well, yeah, it, yeah, this whole data that basically like corporations called, aren't hogging yeah, um, the, the to he claims to have like a, a algorithm of sorts that he calls the monetary expression of labor time, and that's so he basically uses like certain What's data sets. Equation? Like, yeah. Well, no, no, no. Yeah. that's that's related to his solution to the transformation problem. What we're talking well, about here is the is the way that he uses like fairly standard set of like labor statistics put out okay. by the government. So it's yeah. more it's more a question of how he's calculating, and apparently this has some resonance with a debate that liberals have with conservative economists and Kleiman is strangely again or you know on that con- horseshoe convergent theoretical ground where um Kleiman is saying something along the lines of you know corporations use horseshoe theory come on no, now. No, no, no. <laughs> I'm not I'm not saying that to be you know critical I'm just I'm not joking this is it's just one of those things that like if there is oh. a center left you know, kind of Keynesian, yeah, Marxist it's, it's, kind it's of the thing. First They're not law like of dialectics from it, dialectics. Well, well, it is. the unity of opposites. My man's saying opposites. basically that wages can't go up because there just isn't the money there. The corporations, because of the falling rate of profit, aren't making enough profits to give, you know, big pay raises. And so the money just isn't there. And so this is what conservatives say as well. well it's to also, argue it's against a, liberal, but, you know, social democratic economic policies. It's also, it's also a way of doing accounting and in saying that, like, the reason that the debate exists is that there's a discussion about overall income versus wages. Yeah. And I think Clement's right in that. Like, for example, you, you can look at the government statistics and you can say that the wages Okay, and you can see the wages have stayed stagnant or whatever. But what you're the really most important one to look at is the amount of production that goes to the capitalist class or that goes to the working class. If there's a discrepancy there, that's because their income is not coming purely from wages. You know, it can come from many different things. But the most fundamental relation in a, in a capitalist economy is not your actual hourly rate. It's what percentage of the fucking overall production level does the working class get versus the capitalist class. And that has stayed reasonably static over the last 40 years. You know, it's gone up or down a few percentage points, but it's not gone like crazy. You know, that's in production, but there is inequality coming in other talked about this next week so maybe i'll sh- shoot up if you're having climbing on next week you should probably change your avatar to that h with the right word red arrow on it uh, <laughs> yeah okay uh is uh how much time you got uh tom limitless limitless okay cool uh so guys who, who else had some questions 
I just kind of wanted to talk about, um, did you read um, Helena Sheehan's book, um, Marxism and the Philosophy of Science? Well, of course. I did, yeah. Okay, so I was just wondering what your thoughts were on that one, because... He did I mean, a whole amazing podcast where he name-checks us on it. <laughs> um, I thought it was very good. Like, some of it is very technical. Uh, not so much technical, but it's like a historic... I, it, it's quite academic, you know, this philosopher said this to this guy, and this guy said to that guy, and lots of Russian names. It's like reading War and Peace. Mm, but, um, yeah. <laughs> like, what I liked more was just, I, there was some good writing at certain parts in the chapters when she pulled it together, and also just the feel uh, you get of the debates about it, you know, and about how abused the term got. Like, just the history of, like, the class relations and how they played out in Soviet Union, like, in the philosophy of science, you know. Mm. You, you know, your, your opinions of philosophy of science was enough to get you to send to the gulag, you know. Yeah. So, that makes intuitive sense to me in the sense that, um, to me, Marxism basically is a philosophy of science like when people yeah, say that's it, what I was it, is it a science you know it's like no it's yeah, not yeah. a science but it is a sort of broad humanities you know or humanist philosophy of science well, Marx says that, um, science but philosophy of science what like, Marx says i mean is that there's one main science which is basically history and then all other sciences are kind of like sub branches of that just but they're interpreted through the greater materialist conception of history I mean, I think I would describe historical materialism as a science and, like, dialectical materialism as, like, an overall philosophy of science. I think historical materialism is a subset. It's the dialectical methods applied to historiography. That's the kind of way I'd put yeah, it. Yeah, because there's a lot of interpretations of dialectics that kind of see dialectics as almost, like, metaphysical laws of nature. Like, when I read Mao, I kind of get that interpretation of dialectics. Whereas I think like, a more sensible interpretation of what dialectics is, it's just kind of a heuristics that we can use to analyze history, you know, to make sense of the complexities of history and historical change without I mean, having to use black and white thinking, basically. The thing is, like, Engels intends to draw, like, dialectics from nature. Like, yes. these are laws that are being, like, drawn specifically from nature, from empirical data. From science. You analyze the concrete, and then from there you develop abstractions, and then you apply those abstractions again to the concrete. There's kind of a dialectic of the abstract and concrete in Marx's method. That makes sense. I mean, that people say that all the time, and the thing that it's hard to say is that, like, when you're doing a sort of empirical thing, what jumps out at you is not like theoretically neutral. There, there are going to be things that um, strike you as, as more important, and and you're going to be looking at those things. And sometimes, well, so to go from the the you know concrete to the abstract. I mean, every, all theories, all good theories, should be grappling with the concrete and extrapolating. Well, things. I don't think like any science is neutral because like you know we can talk about Hubbard's class biases and how sciences develop, and Marxism has a class bias. It's for the proletariat. You know, the purpose, it's it's meant to be a science for the, you know, the politics of, you know, proletarian emancipation. It yeah. doesn't claim I to mean, be I don't neutral science. It don't should be. It should be that. Well, that's, yeah, I, think I believe I a lot think... of Marxism today is more biased towards, like, the bourgeoisie and its specific substrata, the petty bourgeois that's, like, uh, academic, I well, guess. I think it's, like... it's not meant to be a neutral sociology that just explains things. I, I don't know, like, I think it's supposed to be, like, it's supposed to be, like, a theory of science, <laughs> you know, on a more fundamental level, you know, the fact that class and stuff comes into it, it's not like Marx is trying to inject class into dialectics, class emerges from the analysis using dialectical mm -hmm. methods. Also, what are initial dialectical, say, laws are also perhaps a function of class, you know, Weirdly, well, yeah, that's I what think I'm kind of saying is that any kind of uh, the you know, dialectics kind of mirror class class relations, and so if, like all science is still tainted by the you know class society you live in, and we can only have kind of a true science if you know yeah. classes are eliminated and we live in a you know totally rationalized world, essentially. I wouldn't say something, or sorry, a proletarian theory of science or something. Maybe I'm wrong. I feel like Marx is trying to say 
this is how the, using these laws we can best interpret the world. And like I think Engels would also say that he expected more maybe dialectical laws to come out of science in the future, that they're not set in stone. But I, I don't think like they're trying to have a theory of science that is proletarian. I just think science and the scientific methods has led to class analysis, which gives us historical materialism. That's the kind of way I understand it. I don't know if I have that all wrong. There's a fundamental conflict between like Lukashian kind of Hegelian sort of Marxism and and the, the more structuralist or like potentially analytical kind of traditions. Yeah, I which like are both hostile that. to dialectical materialism as a concept. Which I yeah, like with between the Althusserians and the Hegelians, I feel like I just don't really agree with either. And I don't know. I feel like maybe a more philosophy of science oriented approach could be a kind of solution to a lot of that. Mm -hmm. I would say I would lean towards more the Hegelian interpretation of Marx, but like the major Hegelian Marxists like Lukács and like Karl Korsch, yeah, is just general. Like I believe they made a horrifically bad mistake in terms of like linking dialectical materialism to positivism, like that sort well, of thing is just. Yeah, Karl Korsch like, and Lukács are basically using a Hegelian reading of Marx to justify an ultra-left policy in the common turn. You I mean, have to read very well. What they're trying to say is all about like trying to justify this ultra the the far left wing of the common turn's policy, the theory of the offensive, where you know because of reification, the proletariat can't see you know the real class domination, and so therefore like you know if we break down this reification through kind of small militant acts of the proletariat, then the workers will kind of be arosen out of their Menshevik slumber. And so he's kind of arguing, you know, there's, there's definitely a sort of a yeah. common turn argument intertwined part, in Lukács' arguments. Part of the broader political context uh, is also just that uh, dialectical materialism is the broader philosophical study of, of everything, <laughs> and then yeah. that there's a more limited study of human society called historical materialism. Um, all this kind of like Lukashian, Hegelian stuff and the structuralists and analytical Marxists, on the other hand, like all that is is responding to this, you know, dialectical and historical materialist unity that I have to say, like, I think when we're talking about how uh, Sheehan uses, you know, dialectics, like I'm, I'm more comfortable with it. But, you know, if you pick up Stalin, right, and if you read Stalin's dialectical and historical materialism, this is you know pretty much what he like what he says like almost almost yeah, like, literally like, like he, he, i think like his book on dialectics is supposed to be pretty good <laughs> well that's that make it's you know it's just one of those it's like a reducto ad stalinum you know what i mean i'm like saying to myself <laughs> Well, I mean, there how, were a lot of. I agree um, with Stalin on this. Like, there I'm, were a lot of talented Soviet philosophers okay, like, even past, you know, the golden years. I, yeah, I'm, I, I, Stalin, you know, is not. I don't normally think of him as a talented philosopher. No, no, I'm not um, saying he is, but I mean, he probably had some talented philosophers in his, you know, midst that were helping him out. <laughs> I don't know. I, it's a sort of gut level thing. And again, Helena she yeah. Sheehan is like doing the best interpretation of dialectics of nature. You know, the side of uh, Lewontin and Gould. And she was arguing for this kind of emergent complexity before it had non diamat names and while it was being argued in substance by people in the Soviet Union and the scientific establishment was ignoring it because for, for political considerations. And yeah. it, as it turns out, you know, there's the bitter victory of dialectical materialism where the entire Soviet Union collapses. But its ideology had these methodological principles uh, on, you know, one level or another that turned out to be superior analytical principles. And what's funny I mean, is that you can apply dialectical materialism to the collapse of the Soviet Union and kind of develop. And then from there, you can further develop the theory and its ability to, you know, explain social and historical, you know, tendencies. 
See, you guys, you guys, that's why I really like your podcast. You talk about all these Marxist other writers who have all these theories. Most of these I only barely know. So, like, I find it very interesting. But one thing I kind of, one thing I'm always kind of skeptical, though, as well, of reading all these people's interpretations of stuff is like, like, I much prefer to read the core texts and study them. Because, you, you know, like you just look, you read that Helena Sheehan book and you read how many people like all these famous Marxists had ideas and dialectical materialism that were entirely at odds with, say, what Marx would have said. And like Marx is an order of magnitude a greater thinker than some of these guys writing their shitty theories. Yeah, I mean, that, enough, that's true. Oddly enough, you see that with her specifically talking about uh, Karl Kotsky. Like, that was one of the points that I was kind of disappointed about in her book when she started talking about, like, how Karl Kotsky was a neo-Kantian because he thought that, like, the basic, like, he basically conceded that, yeah, uh, you you can basically get dial you can get historical materialism without the dialectic per se, like you can get to the ultimate conclusions without necessarily believing in the broader philosophical strokes, which is like ultimately true. If if you follow the empirical information well enough, you can probably like have some kind of like crude historical materialism going and that's not that's not to say that dialectical materialism is not useful and like this historical materialism that you're going to get is like crude but you kind of need to like make those considerations when you're working with a broader political movement that's going to have like people coming from different philosophical perspectives like you have to have like programmatic mm-hmm. unity and sort of like limits to like how much ideological unity you want and that sort of thing so that and like i believe like just like she gave the general like sort of contemporary reading of Karl Kotsky that's well, the been, common like, repeated. Turn. It's really the common turn reading of Common Kotsky. turn reading of, like, uh, Kotsky as, like, an economic determinist, which... Well, like, a vulgar economic determinist. Vulgar economic yeah, determinist. Like, you believe that, basically, <laughs> capitalism was going to collapse on its own, according to her interpretation of Kotsky, but if you actually read Kotsky, yeah. it's obvious that he doesn't think that and Kotsky, he, you know, he critiques scientism and, you know, the first part of one of his most important books. So it's yeah, in this in the uh, social revolution, he like critiques it right off the bat. But yeah. anyways, well, and to Tom's point, like um, what's kind of useful about looking at, I guess you could say stuff from the period of like second international Marxism was that these were basically the people trying to like implement Marx's theories and history. And they were the ones who essentially failed. And what's kind of interesting about looking at a lot of this stuff is that you kind of discover how really there's kind of nothing new. Like a lot of things that you see being argued now by other people or they seem to be like reinterpretations of Marxism kind of already existed like in the literature back then, but everyone just kind of forgot about it. So it's actually really useful to because a lot you know these people were Marxists too, and they were reading Marx's theory and not only trying to realize it in history, but also trying to complete it um, theoretically. And so I think you know there's a lot of useful stuff to read from say like Luxembourg, and you know even if you don't agree with her her theories, you can see her trying to sort of like extend. Um, and complete certain aspects of like Marx's core theory. I mean, ways I well, think really. it's like a recurring problem that it gets cruder over time. You know, well, first this tragedy, then as far as <laughs> yeah, well, I think part of the problem is like what we touched on earlier, how there's this whole industry of academics who are Marxists, but you know, try to disprove Marx and prove that oh, we're not like those other Marxists who you know believe in. You know, you know what Marx actually says. We have a new like post-Marxist reading of Marx or whatever, and so you have a lot of Marxism that's not attached to any kind of political movement at all. Whereas people like Luxembourg and Kotsky and Lenin and you know Panikuk, they were arguing all of this stuff, all this theory, and it had real-life political consequences. You know, and so there's more of a need for strong theoretical rigor, I think. When 
well, I, I want to get to something that Tom was saying is that, hey, if you want to do Marxism, just read the core texts. The thing is, like, in general, with intellectual traditions, yes, there's a big head. There's someone who really was innovating and who is really a remarkable intellect. Then they eventually die. And so then they have systematizers that come afterwards and try to, like, make something of what they said. And a lot of times those systematizers end up misrepresenting essential parts of that key figure. But often you can get like relatively consistent picture of what that person was doing, where they were coming from, uh, from paying attention to these systematizers. And usually there's a dominant tradition that's worth paying attention to. In Marxism, that dominant tradition fell apart and is nakedly, obviously not what Marx would have wanted. And there hasn't there hasn't been like a literature that emerges that seems pluralistic and charitable to its alternatives enough that that can be like a convincing, you know, secondary or tertiary Marxist literature. There's no contemporary Marxist textbook that you can read instead of Marx. And that's like evidence that there's not as much progress in this research program as there perhaps should have been. Anyway, Rosa. I think a major problem with just reading the main text is that you're ultimately dealing with a project that's incomplete. Like you, you have people telling you to read capital, like capital is incomplete. And and like most of the things that are held up as like the primary texts of Marxism, like German ideology, dialectics of nature, these are manuscripts. These are things that were not even really meant to be published. It, yeah, but German it, ideology wasn't even meant to be published, but it's kind of like the Bible of historical materialism. Yeah, it, it's but, just like I like mean, a lot of Marxism is just like taking taking whatever scraps that we have and just trying to combine them together to make something that's like scientific and like work works with the empirical data that we have and is ultimately useful in revolutionary struggle. That's what we're working towards. You're going to have to deal with the many different readings of it because at the end of the day, there isn't a singular Marxism that we can go from. No, but say, for example, like I, I'm reading Capital Fallen 3 or and I've done the one and two and all that kind of rubbish, but it's like if I was to go on the internet and try and find Marxists to explain it to me, most of them are full of shit. Yeah. Damn straight. Yeah? Like, that's well, a key problem. I will give an, there's an exception. I.I. Rubin, oh, essays on Marxist theory of value by I.I. Rubin. He's a Soviet economist in the 1920s. I think he got killed by in, in the Stalinist purges. But um, he actually does write an excellent book that explains capital. Oh yeah, I'm not saying that there aren't uh, aren't excellent books. Either. That's like a hundred years saying, ago. But yeah. it's literally. But yeah, I'm not I'm saying that... like this older. A lot of the older shit that explains this stuff is a lot more accurate than a lot of the new stuff because there's this need for novelty and you know they what they call post Marxism and reinventing Marx. Like, like I'm not trying to be facetious. Like, or, or like, see, I one of the reasons I really like your podcast is you talk about all the stuff that I don't really know about that well, and it's really super interesting. But like, so um, for my personal, like, when I'm when I'm trying to understand Marx, I find that it's very hard to to get good teachers on it because uh, you only have to like go around them all and you start finding holes in all what they say. They're blatantly obvious to anybody with fucking two brain cells to rub together. Yeah. And I think that, you know, just basic fucking maths, you know, like <laughs> like division, <laughs> you know, like yeah. falling rate of profit. It's literally like the simplest fucking equation that you would get in like when you're 10 years old in your maths class. Like that there can be interpretations on a formula like that. Is just beyond return to me, and I can't give people who have different interpretations give these things weight. I I just think so much of it is rubbish. I think it's a real big problem for Marxists and stuff like that. Is we're swamped, absolutely swamped in interpretations, most of which will be better off if you put into a bin and set them on fire. 
But you know, like <laughs> maybe maybe I've been sectarian. I know I've never but, even been. But in Tom, a Tom, Tom, it's just us. It's just us, babe. Like you're my teacher. You understand? Like yeah. oh, well, then you're that's, that's, no, that's it. Really, it's it's just us. Like people that are like questing, trying to piece this together as we go along, and are honest about our you know not having been revealed the tr- the truth by uh, you know Adorno or by our professor or something like. Well, that that that's the infrastructure we have. We like these weird little media pockets in theory. And I clusters. think that this stuff, you know, I think that it's going to be in these weird little media pockets and you know stuff like that, where <laughs> genuine Marxism is actually created because of it's it's going to be outside the academia. It's just that the problem is that there isn't really a strong Marxist theory infrastructure outside of academia. And so a lot of the real theoretical problems we need to work on to figure out political, like answers to our political problems, aren't being worked on by a collective. Because knowledge and science is a collective process, you know. I think, like, another problem with a lot of these sort of academics theories is that they somehow like to try and claim on to the real marks while just, like, butchering the theory at the same time. Like, how the fuck can Zizek be the most famous Marxist in the world? Answer me that. He talks about movies, that's why. Well, one, he was a, a, a vocal anti-communist during communist regime, and so when communism fell, and then he contrarianly became like a Marxist, you know, that's funny, A. And then B, he was making the cultural critique that ideology critique as a critical theory discipline is empty during the time when critical theory became most influential. Like, I think a recurring problem with a lot of these, like, newer interpretations of Marx is that they somehow try to claim on to Marx the true mantle of Marxism against, like, the fraudulent, like, ruiners of Marxism. Because the thing with, like, their interpretations, like, the initial wave of, like, critique of the Second International was, like, trying to reclaim Marx from the corruption of Engels or Kotsky or whatever, or, or you know, even of Lenin, like, you get into Dave Crown-style bullshit. The renegade Kotsky and his disciple Lenin type of bullshit. Like, there's almost an elitism to it. Because people like Kotsky and Engels were trying to systematize Marx and teach it to the masses. And so there's this idea that if you make Marxism accessible to the masses, therefore you can only dumb it down and ruin it. Yeah, Lukash. Lukash is big on that theory. Also Debord. I, I, I think, though, if you, look at, if you look at texts like State and Revolution, if you look at Rosa Luxemburg talking about opportunism and things like that, the classical Marxist tradition of the 20th century does have, and I think Lenin included, this sense already of, wow, there's been a lot of distortion of original Marx. So forget, you know, assuming the true mantle, but I don't think Lenin was being absurd. He he really begins State and Revolution saying, we are in a time of distortion of Marx in a way. I think going back to original Marx from the start of his thought and following that whole arc, uh, could be very useful from a contemporary 21st century perspective. Um, I, I do, you know, Lexi was talking about the lack of a cohesive kind of Marxist textbook, and that doesn't have to literally be like, here's Marxism on a platter for anyone, but the the fact that there is no, all right, here's where we are. I mean, yeah. texts that try to do that, like re-eclipse, you see, uh, don't really work, you see. You see, I I think that sort of mindset is, like, going to lead you to, like, ending up in, like, dishonest situations. Like, it's like interpretations of the Bible. There's parts that contradict the other parts, and you're just going to end up in a situation where you're you're going to have a bullshit interpretation. Like, you're going to have parts of your interpretation that are going to be bullshit if you, like, try to claim on to the true mantle of Marx. Like, that's the thing that people don't... Let me give you an example of this. Lenin and, like, every revolutionary Marxist, like, past him, has pretended that Marx made no mentioning of, like, an electoral path to socialism. But he explicitly did so in, like, a speech that he gave... A very explicit one where he argues that, like, the United States and Holland could possibly, like, go through socialism through a parliamentary electoral means. Is that before or after the Paris Commune? 
I mean, after it, the Paris it does. Okay. After the Paris Commune and like the defensivism that like like Lenin calls out, that's also in Marx and Engels. People don't want to admit that. People don't want to admit that because they want to have this interpretation of Marx that's like entirely revolutionary. He's entirely about class struggle. He's against any kind of peaceful means towards socialism. And that's simply not true when you actually read the primary text. And yeah. it's ultimately contradictory with some of the other points that are made by angles and on authority and things like that. But no one wants to admit that. So like trying to find the genuine marks or the genuine angles is like it's a fool's errand the, the search for authenticity is going to lead you astray for Wait, sure no but tom's talking about math like so i i'm a little uncomfortable with with not having a tolerance for pluralism and interpretation but the point where i definitely have convergence is that we need intellectual standards and if there is a math equation then we need to be able oh, yeah. to scrutinize not... the math equation, which is actually a problem when we're dealing with the Michael Heinrich thing and his mathematical critique of Marx. Like, I actually just, you know, I don't know. It seems like his critique goes forward. I'm not sure what that means for Marx. I don't know if it's a matter of interpretation rather than just most of us that are here are less confident about mathematical analysis. Uh, yeah. The alternative, the kind of trying to find the true Marx and the true kind of red thread of loyal theorists in history you know, because Trotskyism, you know, Maoism, left communism, all these different tendencies, they do claim there's this authentic Marxist tradition that's carried on by these thinkers. And I think really that kind of just needs to be dumped as an approach. And we need to kind of study Marxist theories and his ways of looking at history and then study history and apply, you know, these theories to history and see what still holds up and what doesn't hold up. Because Marx developed his theories in accordance with history because you know it was the paris commune that really got him to think very more much more seriously about the state and you know what the proletariat of actually seizing state power would look like and you know he looked his his work in anthrop looking into anthropology caused him to question a lot of his um more uh linear kind of um overly historicist interpretations of development so you know if marxism is meant to be developed in concert with development of history and other knowledge produced in history. Yeah, like I'm not trying to be very dogmatic and <laughs> say only read Marx and to go to the real guys to know what it is. But a, a little bit of me does does have that in me, and a little bit same of same here, same here. Like I and call it... myself an orthodox Marxist because I just think there are certain things in Marx that are real and, and are true, and no one can yeah, convince I... me otherwise. And I think it's our job, if, if we want to call ourselves uh, extremely minor, nearly invisible public intellectuals, that, our, <laughs> you know, our job as like kind of Marxist ones of them, surely we must be somehow trying to bullshit for other people so they don't have to go through it. Well, yes, I, was, a lot of work. I wasn't yes, intending absolutely. to argue that each interpretation is equally valid. I was no, arguing I, more that like no, no, no. we should test Marx's ideas in relation to like the concrete, like empirical mm -hmm. data and like history as a whole. But guys, guys, what did Marx mean by equals? You know, think about it. Like, <laughs> have you ever read that good story? Question. And as soon as seriously. I as soon as I get some tenure, Th there I think will I'll be, be... All out. Yeah, said he actually meant greater than or equal to. That will be a theory. I fucking swear. I bet you it exists. I fucking well, guarantee it exists. Here's here's something like what does Marx mean by need? And that might just seem, you know, like a silly kind of question, but if you actually think about it, there was actually a Hungarian philosopher, Agnes Heller actually is her name, and she wrote, you know, she was looking at um, you know, the form of central planning they had in Hungary. And the idea is that, you know, we're planning for human need. But the question is, like, what is human need and how we determine human need? And so that kind of theoretical, almost philosophical question becomes a practical question because it relates to planning the economy in a post-capitalist society. Right. But what what is a separate interesting question, but not the same question is, what did Marx think about this? Like, and I I want to push back a little bit and just say that it is, you know, if you're using Marx as an authority figure, then it, it does matter what Marx thinks. However, the hope would be that Marxism would one day be more like other approaches to science 
that, you know, if you do evolutionary biology, you don't have to read Darwin and make sure, you know, everything, you know, accords with what he said in Origin of Species. Well, like, I think I think what's missing there is like a decent like infrastructure, uh, <laughs> you know what I mean? And not just like, a you know, I well because before the infrastructure you had was based in the Soviet there was, Union. There was some great infrastructure before, big infrastructure, big, beautiful. Well, infrastructure. See, nobody dropped the ball on implementing evolution for a century, though. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I I think it's like easier to do things like evolution than it is to do like like class struggle and that sort of thing because there's like there the political implications of class struggle are more direct than evolution. Like I I'm not saying like I'm not doing a neo-Kantian thing where like the social sciences and the natural sciences are completely separate. Well, there was social Darwinism. It's not for lack of trying. I was thinking. Well, yeah, and I was. Darwinism. I'm going to say. I'm going to push back against this idea that you know there was no real attempt to try Marxism in the 20th century. Like I don't think that these revolutions failed because people didn't believe in the authentic Marx and tried to. Well, put that, the that's not what I was like. Yes. Okay, I got one question. I want to get in before we wrap this thing up. Um, it's not a question. I was going to say. Yeah, this one dude on was talking about cold fusion one time. What's up? With that? Oh yeah. Yeah, no, I like that was just weird. Like he's a world famous mathematician, that guy. Like he's really famous. Did you know he was gonna talk about cold fusion half the time or I know and I got him on and he just started talking to you about cold fusion. Oh my god. (laughs) I think I need to listen to this because that sounds awesome because I'm all about that. He's the most famous mathematicians in the world, that guy. And his name is um Gregory Chiton. I don't know how I got him on. I got him on twice. And he literally just started Amazing. talking about cold fusion. Wait, for like was he trying to use minutes. cold fusion to like debunk evolution or something like no, that? No, no, no. The evolution guy was different, right? Same guy. Look, he's in Scientific American every fucking second week. And wow. He's had like, you know, very successful mathematics books, you know, like to sell like a million copies and things like that. He's a proper fucking genius. And then he just wouldn't shut up about cold fusion. <laughs> What am I gonna do? I just said fuck it. I'll put it out there. You know, I just said fuck it. I don't care. Well, guys, all we have to do is is learn a technical discipline, make a breakthrough in it, and then whatever crank theory we want, you know, we we could put it I out know, there. Yeah, yeah it like, um it reminds me of uh, Daniel Dennett believing in like uh, aquatic ape theory. Like we just need to like learn technical discipline so we can figure out how to crack cold fusion. Then we'll, get some, <laughs> then we'll create some shell companies, buy a bunch of land, and build like fully automated space communism in one like island yeah. or some shit. Yeah, in one compound. Yeah. Yeah. I was like really, I was embarrassed with that episode. Like my mate is actually a professor in MIT, and he was over, and he was after listening to it, and we were playing a game of table tennis. He's back in back in Ireland, and he was saying to me, "What the fuck is it? Do you believe in cold fusion now?" I was like, "Oh God, that was <laughs> that, that was, one, that was one of my favorite episodes." I mean, like, I'm, I'm, like, I'm pretty sure cold fusion's bullshit, but this is like this is like with my head a little bit. Like, yeah, like I don't know, like the way he was talking, I, I had to actually go and have a look around because I didn't have a fucking clue what he was talking about. But yeah. uh, who knows? Yeah, being able to entertain ideas without accepting them is like a short version of intelligence. You know what I mean? I think well, that's why I like doing far right stuff on this show. I think your far right stuff is really, really, really good. It gets like, some of the best, uh, no pun intended, reactions. Hey, and honestly, I think it's one of the more unique things that we do because people are so ethically motivated in politics, they really just don't want to even consider stuff like that. Just actually like saying we need to actually critique these ideas and explain why they're wrong and not just call people Yeah, and, and, and like show the bits of them that some, like nearly every right-wing theory has a kernel of truth in the fucker, you know? And that's mm-hmm. how they're able to be accepted. There's like a reification of something true that's turned into a, like something is kind of naturalized when it's really, you know... Mm-hmm not a natural thing but you know a changing thing i would like consider like carl schmidt to be one of the greatest political philosophers of the 20th century so there's something obviously there there's something obviously there because carl schmidt is like taught in like universities in germany to this day and that's pretty unique among like people who were associated with the nazis academically because like most people they didn't have careers after that heidegger he was in exile he didn't have a career it took like hannah Arendt, like and like a whole bunch of people rehabilitating his work after like his association with the Nazis for people to take Heidegger seriously again in academia. 
obviously they were teaching Schmidt's work right after World War II in German law schools. They were teaching it in American law schools. So there has to be something yeah. there because laws. And Zizek likes it, so it's got to be good. That guy's really smart. <laughs> no, I mean, I mean, there's something practical there because they wouldn't be teaching it in law schools if there wasn't something there that rationalizes either power or something like that. Well, I'd say, yeah, Carl Schmidt really does get you into the mindset of state power and, you know, the bourgeois dictatorship, whatever you want to call it. Can I say something pejorative? Please. Uh, like, how many leftists has Zizek fooled into reading bullshit like Lacan instead of Marx? <laughs> oh, oh, there's one of them sitting in this fucking chat right now. <laughs> oh, shit. Jake knows Lacan. Fuck yeah, well, Actually, in one of the episodes we haven't released yet, uh, Jake talks about Lacan and explains uh, his basic concepts. Lacan actually does have some interesting ideas. I mean, I don't, I don't give a fuck what anyone says. But I mean, Lacan couldn't even explain his own ideas. No. <laughs> the Lacan safe space, apparently. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, Jake. You were my favorite, too. <laughs> you weren't. Yes. In your face. No, but I mean, it all goes back. We, we should, you know, we should be open and look at all kinds of different ideas, even ideas as wacky as Lacan. I mean, you know, we talked about well, I know that. Mike on here. I know, but not as an episode. But, like, can you imagine, like, how much wasted time? Oh, I can imagine pretty well. I can imagine very, very <laughs> I feel the same way about a lot of the Marxists that I've read. And, like, I tried reading Deleuze and that sort of thing, and I, I'm pretty sure there's something there. But at the same time, I feel like <laughs> they get caught up in a lot of fancy kind of words. rhetoric that, yeah, yeah. fancy Rosa, words and rhetoric. people to who the... did too much acid. Sophistry. Yeah. yeah Sophistry. It, Absolutely. I mean, I don't want to outright dismiss it as sophistry because it's hard to read because that's kind of a lazy impulse that a lot of analytic philosophers have fair where it leads them to like dismissing Foucault and that sort of thing is complete bullshit when no obviously there is some truth to like the relationship between schools and prisons and like how like the softening of like disciplinary functions has operated as a well that's you know, that's Foucault's most Marxist work you know like he, yeah, he's quoting Capital all throughout that book. There's obvious truth there. And initially, I had the same response to a lot of those postmodern thinkers, but you still need to read them, even though they're hard at times. I recommend and even if it's bullshit, like you have to take the time to figure out, OK, this guy's just pulling shit out of his ass at this point, and then you can cut it off. I mean, yeah, so I guess... In, uh, there is an infinity of shit that you can read, though. There's yeah, an infinity yeah. of shit. Right. Like, and, and, like, I'm guilty. You know this kind of praxis and, 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 and theory stuff. I am 100% guilty of just being a theory person. Apart from, like, if you call it podcast praxis, maybe you could make an argument for it, but it's probably bullshit. Theoretical production. I'd say it's it's educational praxis. Yeah, but, like, let's say it is, right? But, like, if we think about all the... There's an infinite number of books that we can read, you know, and if we're trying to make Mm -hmm. actionable change in the world, you know what I mean? How much of it is, is, is our just actual personal liking of reading Okay. You know, it's just something that struck me. Like, uh, I'm thinking of, like, I'm going to do set up a Marxist reading group because I've just been thinking, like, you know, I'm doing all this thinking about Marxist bullshit and I'm not doing it in the real world at all. No, General I, points. I, I, I struggle totally with it anyway. I, I struggle with it, too. There's this great uh, Bert Locke Brecht quote where he says, hungry man, reach for the book. It is a weapon. And, you know, like, guns change the world. But I, I, I want Marxism to be that kind of weapon. But instead, it's cultural critique that claims that cultural critique is now subsumed into capital. Marxism isn't really meant to be a um, class neutral science. You know, it's meant to be a weapon of the proletariat. So um, I know, Todd, you said you had to go in a couple of minutes. Yeah. Is there anything else uh, you wanted to say before, uh, before you peace out here? I don't know. If I, if I think I've annoyed everybody now. Have I annoyed absolutely everybody on the panel? That was my task before I came on here. I mean, um, do you yes. hate the Frankfurt School? I just hate Frankfurt as a city. <laughs> okay, so you, uh, that's, you know, that's good. If you want to do an intro, you could just get Jake to do my voice because it was practically perfect. Oh my God. Okay. All right. <laughs> that's, that's, no, it wasn't. That's me, Lucky Charms, you guys. <laughs> it was fucking Lucky Charms. That's essentially, it was exactly Lucky Charms.
Support me get my gold. I was like, what, me what get fucking country is that from? <laughs> no, but I'm your point about reading pointless stuff. Like, I just imagine, like, how much, like, pointless bullshit, like, people read to understand the finer points of Adorno or... Did he read all that stuff and I haven't got around to reading it yet, so it's fucking brilliant. <laughs> Don't waste too much time on the Frankfurt School. <laughs> well, that is why we are here, if we have any function in a, you know, revolutionary project at all. We are here to save you time, dear listener. So you can direct your own education with a bit of information, if you trust our point of view. And if you just listen to the right podcasts, you know? It is, it is, you don't need to Google it here. It is our job. <laughs> that was a long one. But, you know what they say. Time flies when you're having fun. I hope the time flew by for you. Whatever you're doing when you're listening to this. Doing dishes slacking off on your job or maybe working hard at your job you just have a little earpiece tucked in there maybe your boss gives a shit that you have it maybe you don't maybe you play it to your group your workmates instead of the radio there used to be this thing in um, cigar rolling in Tampa where they would hire lecturers or People would basically sit on these platforms and read literature, uh, nonfiction works, the newspaper, to the people hand-rolling the cigars. I think podcasts are sort of like the modern-day equivalent of this, but they're highly niche, customized to the interests of each person, as opposed to being like a collective experience. Which probably says something about the way that labor has become increasingly atomized within the workforce compared to previous, more collective eras of capitalist work. Really makes you think. Yeah, so that's that. Um, next week, we're doing uh, Star Trek and Communism. We're going to do a commentary track to uh, Season 1, Episode 26, The Neutral Zone. What's yeah. 26, The Neutral Zone? What's that? That's the one with the frozen people. They wake them up from the 20th century, yeah. And then Picard explains space communism to them, basically. Oh, that one, yeah, yeah, sorry, yeah. I gotta leg it, I really do. Yeah, I gotta Thanks so much for coming on, by the way. Seriously, brilliant. And keep up the good work, man. Ladies, thanks very much for uh, having us on. And, uh, um, uh, uh, revolution, huh? Something like that. (laughs) Candy (laughs) Lucy. Long and proud. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) That's it. (laughs) All right. Keep up with the screen.